Jeremiah chapter 33. Now this is just a little added information here, but uh, in Jeremiah 33 there is a verse of scripture that I, I believe is, is so valuable to every believer and every uh, follower of Christ. Uh, and while it is an Old Testament scripture, uh, I think we can say it's one, one of the, probably the, one of the most powerful scriptures uh, there is. And of course, the, the scripture itself is God speaking to Jeremiah, but uh, in effect, he's speaking to us also. It's uh, verse 3 that says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. It's one of those great verses of Scripture that you want to memorize. So mark it in your Bibles. So I'm telling you right, right even before we start. You know, mark that verse of Scripture in your Bible. Tonight we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and, uh, and then we'll pray and get right into our study this evening. Tonight we're going to look at uh, the first 16 verses. I wanted to do the whole chapter, but... Uh, there's some valuable things to say about this verse and as well other verses of, of great importance, not only in understanding what Jeremiah is going through at his time, but again how these scriptures affect us in our present time. Verse 1 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. Well, the word came to him, of course, uh, in chapter 32 uh, when he was uh, taken and arrested and put into, into prison. But here he's given a second word from the Lord while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the Lord who made it, speaking of the earth and all its creation, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Shall we pray? Father, we can truly say with Jeremiah this evening, as we can say it at any time, that we come before your throne of grace. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for thee. And we know, Lord God, that truth because we have seen and experienced and we've come to know the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of your might spiritually and many times even physically and certainly, Lord, emotionally where you have touched us with such great compassions and mercies when we have fallen and faltered. I pray, Father, that as we look closely at your word this evening, that you would indeed continue to speak to us and to speak to our hearts, to encourage us, especially because we, we live in trying times. We live in perilous times. We live in dangerous times. And we need to hear you. We need to know, Lord God, what your will is. 
And we need to see the face of Jesus in everything that is said from your word. So, Father, open our hearts to the preciousness, to the genuineness, and to the awesomeness of your word. Fill us, anoint us, and bless us with your Holy Spirit. Instruct us in the ways of righteousness and lead us into your everlasting love and grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to give this study a title, it would be Living for the moment, or living in the moment. And more precisely, living in the moment. You know, there are a considerable number of people who actually still live in the past. And I'm not talking so much about those in the nostalgia craze. But those who live in the past with regrets. (laughs) Like... Uncle Rico in the movie Napoleon Dynamite. How many of you have seen it? Know what I'm talking about. Fantastic movie. Should have won the Academy Award. (laughs) Uncle Rico, who would have given anything to go back in time to achieve an athletic glory that never truly was a part of his life as he would have wanted it. People live that way. Others put their hopes in the future, expecting that their financial woes will all be solved by their acquiring that next lucky lottery ticket, which, by the way, there's one tonight. Uh, Still others live with great fear in what the future may hold. Jeremiah was one who learned what it meant to be living in the moment. At this particular moment in his life, Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. This is what we've come to up to this point in Jeremiah 33. Jerusalem is, 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 is about to, to be destroyed. The Babylonians have already built their siege mounds around the, the walls of the city. And uh, it's less than a year now before they come into the the city of Jerusalem. Judah was about to, uh, was at the very brink of captivity and and exile. In other words, the nation, the people. And and what's next? Here he is as a prisoner in the king's court. So you talk about living in the moment. That was his moment. That's where he was at. And it is the Lord God of Israel who reminds Jeremiah that he is in the prophet's moment. God says, I'm in your moment, Jeremiah. I'm right where you are. In other words, he's living real time with Jeremiah. That's kind of a 21st century way of of dealing, you know, we call it real time. Well, that's God. Living in the moment with us. Living in the moment with Jeremiah. 
You know, it's not uncommon today to see commercials or, or uh, you know, commercials on TV by, by insurance companies or financial institutions uh, dramatizing families concerned with their futures. I think you've probably seen some of these commercials. Whether, whether or not there will be enough in their retirement portfolios 20, uh, 20 or 30 years down the road. Some of them text to each other, you know, and all. And you can almost hear the Lord saying to these people, you're watching these commercials. The Lord's telling them, are you going to live 20 or 30 years in the future and worry? Or are you going to trust me to take care of you right now? Because right now is the moment. Right now is where you're at. And where you're at, I'm with you. By the way, let me, let me tell you this. That, did you know that the enemy... But Satan, but the devil, did you know that the enemy hates for any believer to live in the moment with Jesus Christ? He hates it when we're living in the moment with Jesus. Do you know why? Because he can't be in the picture. We're saying something to the enemy when we, when we fellowship with Christ. When we're in communion with God and with Jesus. We're saying, depart from me. Because I'm here with the Lord. But let me interject as well. Please don't say that, you know, to the devil one, one moment. But then when you're tired of being with Jesus, go and say, well, you know, all right, come on in. Can't do that. The hope and the prayer is that every day we will want to be in Christ's presence. And to have His presence be with us. What the enemy wants of you and wants of me is that uh, he'd rather that we stress out with the rest of the world in a state of unbelief. Because as long as we're not in fellowship with the Lord, we're in a state of unbelief. We're saying, well, you know, we'll believe you whenever we want to, but when we're not with you, well, we'll believe whatever we want. It's a matter of living in the moment with Christ and knowing that whatever problem or trial or situation that you're going through, Christ is with you. Because first of all, he said he would be. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. That's Jesus' promise. And we're going to learn a lot about promises tonight. Not our promises to each other because we can fail each other, but God cannot lie. And God will not fail us. So, although, getting back to Jeremiah, although the prophet was in bondage, now get, get this, although he was a, a prisoner in bondage, the Word of God was not bound. The Word of God is never bound, no matter what bondage we might be in. And the great promise in God's Word here is that the people who keep hope and faith in the Lord, even though they're, they're long in sorrow, shall again be filled with joy. There will be joy as long as we are realizing that God is with us in the moment. Another of the great promises of God is that He will answer prayer. Look again at verse 3. Call to me, He says. I love the King James. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Call unto me and I will answer you. And of course this is based on, on God's character and power as expressed in the previous verse. So go back to verse 2 and look at that. Because, he, because there it says, Thus saith the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. And then he says, the Lord is his name. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So the context 
of this statement in, uh, found in chapter 32, verse 17. The context of this statement is found in chapter 32, verse 17, which happens to be Jeremiah's prayer. So just go page back, and, and that's, that's the basis here. It is the context. Jeremiah 32, 17. All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. What is Jeremiah saying? He's saying what is true. God created the heavens and the earth. God did so with his great power and outstretched arm. He's acknowledging the power of God. He's acknowledging that God is the creator. And he says there is nothing too hard for you. And so again in verse 2, God uses his covenant name. Notice at the end of verse 2. He says, the Lord is his name. Now, we have it in parentheses if you have the New King James. There are other translations may have it as well. But nonetheless, it says, the Lord is his name. The Lord is capitalized, L-O-R-D, all caps, to signify that this is his name. Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew. We've tried to give it a pronunciation, so we pronounce it Yahweh. Some people for ages have called him Jehovah. But... Y-H-W-H is really the, the closest to the name that, uh, you know, and the Jews will not pronounce the name of God. So they, you know, it's a very sacred, very holy name. But the Lord, it says, is his name. Y-H-W-H or, or Lord for, uh, so God is using this name to, uh, for Jeremiah to understand his faithfulness to what he has said concerning restoration. So, see, this is the time. He's saying to him, you know, I, the Lord, who have made the heavens and the earth, as you've told me, and the Lord is my name. He's doing that to tell Jeremiah. And Jeremiah can understand that he's going to be faithful to what he has said concerning the restoration of Israel, even though everything looked pretty dark at that point. Again, the siege mounds had been built around Jerusalem. Babylon was, was just at the door of, and the gates of, of the city. The people were about ready to be taken into captivity. He's still in prison. But God says, the Lord's my name. I made a covenant with my people. I will be faithful to my covenant. So to call upon God, you see. So when he says, call to me, to call upon God was a command. Folks, it's not a suggestion. To call upon God, he says, call to me and I will answer you. He's not suggesting anything to Jeremiah. But this command came with a promise. Call to me and I will answer you. There's the promise. And show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So it came with a promise that the Lord would hear him and then tell him inaccessible things. Because the word in the Hebrew there for the things that you do not know is one Hebrew word that means inaccessible. We don't have access to it. You try to get onto a certain particular website that, you know, they might have a little free zone in it, and I'm hoping it's a good website, not a weird website. But you have one, and then, but you want to get in deeper, you can't because you don't have access to it. Until you do what? Until you pay. Because that's pretty much how they want you to get in to some of those websites. So you, make, you have access when you finally do something. 
So that's, that's kind of the same idea here. Here's a promise. God said, I will answer you and show you things that you do not know. The things that are inaccessible to you. Things that are enclosed or fortified and protected until asked for. At which time they will be disclosed. So they're enclosed until you do what? Until you ask and then he says, now I'll disclose it. He has enclosed it. And that's, that's the word. It's, it's like a fortress around it. No one can get in until you ask. Obviously there are things that God wants us to know. But we have to ask. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because it's been said that while God is always ready to answer the cry of the human heart, man must first request assistance. So God is reminding Jeremiah, you want something? You've got to ask. What did James say in his letter? You have not because you ask not. But the very phrase of calling unto God, that's a little early there. Don't jump the gun. You know, the, the, the thing about calling unto God is not something new here to Jeremiah. It, it's been given to us really from the very beginning. But it's strengthened by passages like Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. Look at the times that we, call up, we are to call upon Him. Again, these are not suggestions, really they're commands. Did you know that uh, in, the, in, in the Psalms, if you look at, at the last five Psalms, Psalms 146 or, 140, or 150, you know, they all begin with the word, Alleluia. They all begin with, praise the Lord in the English. By the way, praising the Lord is not a suggestion or, you know, it's a command. God deals with us that way. God doesn't make suggestions. If you go to the book of Exodus, when Moses went up to the mount to receive the tablets, God didn't tell him, well, listen, I've got, a, I've got ten suggestions for you. He says, I've got ten commandments for you. Not suggestions. God deals with absolutes, folks. And these absolutes we need to take very clear notice of. So, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So, there, there's a blessing that comes when we call. We may, it may be a day of trouble. See, now, what does that tell us? Some people will get the idea, I only call upon the Lord when I'm in trouble. No, we call upon the Lord all the time. We should. Why? Because we are blessed when we have that fellowship with God. Day in, day out. It's not a Sunday thing. Look at you guys here on a Wednesday. But let me tell you this, it's not a Sunday and a Wednesday thing. It is an everyday thing to call upon the Lord. And sometimes when, God, when, when everything's going so well with us, that's the time we say, Lord, we're thankful that we're blessed by you, but humble us, so that we don't get too carried away thinking it's us and not you. We need to have that kind of an attitude about the good things that happen to us. So Psalm 91, verse 14 says, Because he has set his love upon me. And I've got to tell you, Psalm, I should say, Jeremiah 33 is a, is, is a chapter that just oozes with the love of God. Though we may not see the words there, we know that God loves His people so much that even though He will take them through the trials that they go through, He's going to be there to restore them at the end. 
And here the psalmist says in verse 14 of Psalm 91, Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high. Now, what, he, what he's saying actually there is, the psalmist is saying because uh, he's, he's, he's actually speaking the words of God. This is, these are the words of the Lord. Because he, has, he, us, have set our love upon him, therefore God's going to deliver us because we love him. And then he says, I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me. There it is again. He shall call upon me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. Now please don't... See, it's be, it would be easy to misunderstand that phrase. Why? Well, God wants to be in trouble with us. When you remember you that were in school, you didn't want to be in trouble alone. You want to be in trouble with somebody else. Because you always thought, well, if, if, if we share the trouble, you know, the, the, the consequence won't be so bad. No, that's not what it means. It means that when we're facing troubles and trials and tribulations and struggles, God says, if you call upon me, I'll be right there with you. I'll be right there with you to help you. He says, I will deliver him and honor him. Because we've called upon him because we love him. And then he says, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So I believe God extends that same promise to each and every one of us. God extends that same promise to each and every one of us. Call to Him, speak to Him, and let Him comfort you, reassure you, and show you things that are inaccessible by human knowledge. And God will bear witness by His Spirit to our spirit the things that He wants to show us. Deuteronomy 25, 25 says that secret things belong to the Lord. But all that God wants to reveal to us, we can, we can re- rejoice in those things. We can know them. And so here's where the prophecy continues. For thus says the Lord God, verse 4, Jeremiah 33, For thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men, whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Now the prophet... Jeremiah knew that the city of Jerusalem was destined for judgment and that the city itself was full of houses that that the people of the city had demolished to build up the city walls so that the Babylonians could not break through them. That was the purpose of the siege mounds, to come along, you know, just to build these siege mounds to come over, but actually at times in places to go through the walls as well. So they would tear down their houses and just fortify the areas where the Babylonians were trying to come in. Remember, this is a whole period of time. They were just going little by little to get, you know, finally destroy the city. They also used some of the palace wood and stone for this as well. Not only that, but the city was also full of Jewish corpses. The city, remember, there was, there was devastation because of famine and pestilence. So there were dead people all over the city of Jerusalem. Those who had already died in the siege. Because because you know that uh, uh, Jerusalem was uh, was really the last city. Almost all of Judah was already held captive by, by by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. 
So there have been people that died already in the siege, but we know that these people died because the Lord was fighting against His people. Why? Well, you know, we've gone over this for 33 chapters. The people were disobedient to God. Had they been obedient to the Lord, had they, had they uh, uh, forsaken their idols, had, had, they, had they returned to the Lord, God would have honored that. But instead, they, they rebelled against God. They worshipped idols. They worshipped idols not only in their homes, but even in the temple. The kings uh, encouraged it. And God says, you're not listening to me. What am I going to have to do to keep you as my people? He brought judgment. And God used a foreign kingdom to bring that judgment upon them. But the question might be asked, why would God allow such devastation and destruction to such a degree that the nation would be filled with the dead bodies of His own people? Well, let me tell you that there is a biblical principle. There's a biblical principle here, and I don't want you to miss it. The biblical principle is that death would in fact result in life. Death would result in life. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. Notice what God says. We've just heard the death part. We've just heard the, you know, the part of the judgment that deals with the death of so many people. But notice in verse 6, He says, Behold, I will bring it health and healing. Death takes place, but then God says, But I'm going to bring health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Now follow closely and don't, don't miss any of these verses. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and and truth. They have been living in constant chaos and in constant lies and deceptions. He says, I want them to be in peace and in truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, kingdom to return to the land and will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Now, now let me, let's stop there and just let me ask you a quick question here. Alright, so he's going to heal them. He's going to bring them back into the land. He's going to restore the land. He's going to help them rebuild everything. So what should they do? They should honor God by living their lives for, you know, in righteousness as God has now given them Forgiveness. Where does the problem lie? When we go back to the old ways. Well, we won't get there yet, but that's still... Yeah, we're, you know, let, let's, just, let's just deal with one thing that God's doing. He says, I'm going to heal them. And He's not making any mistakes here. God doesn't make any mistakes. God knows exactly what He's doing. Alright, let's get to verse 9. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, being the city. The, the, the name of the city will be of joy, a praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth, who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. I can tell you right now that a lot of people are anti-Semites, anti-Jewish as it were, but they're anti-Semitic because God loves His people. But God said He loved them. And God said that He chose them. And God can do whatever He wants with the people that He loves and the people that He chooses. 
So what's, what's the cry of everybody else? That's not fair. Well, God can do whatever He wants. Because He is a good God, He's an honest God, he, he's, a, he's an awesome God, He's a perfect God. He's a God of justice, He's a God of truth. So God can do what He wants. But you see how things can get, you know, get under our craw and get us to, you know, get some people to really just hate what God does, hate who God loves, hate the things of God. But God here is, is wanting to restore them. So now a generation would have to die before God's people could experience new life in the promised land. That's why they go to Babylon for how long? Seventy years. The generation passes out. A new generation will come back in. What happened when, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? And there they were in the, in the wilderness for forty years. What happened within that time? A whole new generation had arose in the wilderness. And all the generation that could have entered into the promised land 11 days after they left Egypt instead wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and never got to see the promised land. And Moses was a type of the law because the law is what they were breaking all through the time that they were in the wilderness. And, and even though Moses was, was good in the sense that God had called him to lead them to the promised land because the law leads us to the knowledge of Christ... Even Moses was not allowed into the promised land. But Joshua, who is the type of Christ, leads the new generation into the promised land along with two men, Joshua and Caleb, who were of the other generation. Why them? Because they trusted God, you see. All right. So a generation would have to die then before God's people could experience new life in the promised land. And as Jesus would say in John chapter 12, listen, we're getting back to that principle of death before life. John 12, 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. There's some sense that when the, when the grain is still on the tree or on the, on the flower or on the, on the grain of, of, of some plant, that there's life being brought to it, but as soon as it falls away from that and loses the connection to life, it falls on the ground and it dies. But the fact of the matter is, when you plant seeds at your home, what are you doing? You're planting something that's dead. But as soon as you begin to water it and care for it, what comes up? Something that's alive. It's alive. It's alive. The Frankenstein thing, you know, I just... We mentioned movies earlier. I thought maybe we were still on the movie pick, you know. So Jesus said, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. It just sits there. If you put a piece of grain upon a, 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 an asphalt street, it ain't going to grow on top of that asphalt. But when it falls to the ground, that goes into the ground, where water can affect it, and the nutrients of the soil affect it, it comes to life. And then he says, but if it dies... It produces much grain. That's the principle. With death comes life. One of the great paradoxes in the scriptures is that without death, there can be no life. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, uh, I'm sorry, verse 31, at the very end of the verse, he says, I die daily. See, we have to die daily. Why? So that we can live in Christ. 
Because in Galatians chapter 3, verse, uh, 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Tell, real quickly, what does it mean when I've been crucified with Christ? If you're crucified, what happens to you? You die. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, in other words, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But that principle still remains here. I have been crucified. I am dead. But Christ lives in me. I've been planted into the very soil of God's word, God's truth, God's love, God's law, God's grace. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm alive. And I have the promise of eternal life because of what Christ has done for me. Jesus died to rise again from the dead. So there's the picture. And by the way, I know that it sounds strange. But, but what God is saying in verse 6 of Jeremiah 33, Behold, I will bring you health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance, so on and so forth. What God is saying in verse 6 is that He hurts them to heal them. Because He's judged them, you see. Verse 5. <laughs> he judged them. In verse 6, He heals them. So I mean, it, it sounds strange that God is saying that He hurts them to heal them. But when we rebel against God, He will do whatever it takes to get us back on track again. He will do whatever it takes for the southern kingdom of Judah. Captivity was the hurt that would eventually bring, them, bring about healing in their lives. There was judgment, yes, but there was captivity. And it was the captivity that would be the hurt to those who were remaining that would bring them back and bring healing to them. In other words, God means it all for good. God means it for good, not for evil. Never for evil. God does nothing for evil. God does everything for good. The evil, we're pretty good at doing ourselves. But God does what is good. And consider for a moment what came out of... What came out of the Holocaust? You all know about the Holocaust, right? Please don't be ignorant about the Holocaust. Please don't be acting like that little, you know, uh, dictator from, from Iran, Ahmadinejad, who says there was no Holocaust. It's history. It's been recorded. It happened. Six million Jews were exterminated by Hitler and others. But consider for a moment what came out of the Holocaust. Six million Jews died. What came out of the Holocaust? The state of Israel. If that isn't God showing himself strong for his people, I don't know what is. This is why I, I strongly stand against any kind of teaching that, that, that uh, sounds like um, replacement theology. In other words, well, God has forsaken His people Israel and now we, the church, are the receivers of the blessings of Israel. Now, I'll tell you why in, in a moment. It's actually in the, what we're going to study next week, but I'll, I'll take you there anyway. So I want you to see, God did it already before. 
He told us, you know, if if the sun, the moon, the stars, if, if all of those fail, then my love for Israel fails. Well, they haven't failed yet. Okay, so the idea here is out of death, out of the six million Jews came the reborn state of Israel. Now, in verses 7 through 9, we see, the, we see the good that God is bringing about in them as they recognize their sin. Getting back to, to Judah. God is not going to wipe them out. The first thing God points out is that, that they're going to return home again. Both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So those are both mentioned there in that passage. Verse 7. The captives of Judah and the captives of Israel return. And secondly, their restoration back to the Lord as they repent of their sins. So they will be restored. The nation will be brought back to one, and they will be restored in the land. And the, and the third thing going on is, is to, uh, that God is going to do is to restore them to the place of honor before the other nations. Look, if you will, at verse 9. Then it shall be to me a name of joy. Speaking of the nation of Israel in the land... A joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth. Can, can we say that's happening today? Not at all. It's not happening today. If you go to the United Nations today, which uh, UN means uh, united nothing, because they're just nothing over there. Honestly, I mean, it's just a waste of time what they do. But the one thing that they're really good at doing is hating Israel as a whole. And putting all kinds of, of, of condemnations upon Israel, while Israel is only trying to exist. They do what they do because if they don't do what they do, then the nations around them will do everything they can to destroy it. Now let me ask you something. 1948, May of 1948, on the day that they received acceptance into, into uh, the United Nations as a nation with our vote and I believe it was also Sweden but with those votes it was really God's hand they come into the nation or they come into uh, you know, as a nation that same day they're already fighting for their lives the Arab nations around them were ready to throw them into, this, into the sea those were the words of, of, uh, of, of Nasser the, the the president of, of Egypt at the time. And, and all Nasser wanted to do was destroy Israel. 1948, they tried, they did, it failed. 1956 was another attempt to start a war against Israel. Then, of course, we probably all, some of us remember, most of you just studied it, the Six-Day War of June 1967, where uh, a, a Millions and millions of Arabs from, from Syria and Jordan and Egypt, uh, the main ones and, and a whole bunch of other ones, uh, came down upon Israel. And Israel, in six days, with their planes and with their tanks, uh, actually destroyed much of the Arab uh, armament and recaptured the city of Jerusalem. In 1973, there was a secret attack upon Israel. It was called the Yom Kippur War because on the day of Yom Kippur, the Jews very faithfully go uh, to pray, to, you know, to uh, atone for their sins and, and all. And so the, uh, uh, 
word got out, you know, that this was the day to attack. And they got caught napping. And they lost a lot of people. But as soon as they regrouped, they struck back and recaptured the Golan Heights. They, 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 you know, they just did what we would have to say was impossible for any army except for the fact that this army had God's hand upon it. Why? Because God is faithful to His people. So ever since then, there's been all kinds of attempts, all kinds of ways to try to destroy this nation, but you have to realize God's hand is upon it. That's one reason I'm not afraid to go there. And none of us should be afraid to go to Israel. God's hand is on His people. There's, still, there's a lot still that we, we, we're going to learn some things tonight before we, before we close that, that are going to be kind of heavy about, about Israel right now. But, but, but understand, God is going to restore them to a place of honor before the other nations, and it isn't going to be because of the U.N., all right. Do you remember when we first started our studies in Jeremiah? A long time ago. Well, here's what the Lord said in chapter 1, verse 10. He said, See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. Notice. To root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Well, this has come to pass. The prophecies that Jeremiah has had to carry to his people Judah and Jerusalem was this very same message. God is going to root you out, pull you down, destroy you and throw down, but then He's going to build you and plant you. So let's remember that He does the same thing in our lives. Really, it, 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 it is a picture of us. It is a picture of every one of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some things must be torn down that He might build something wonderful. But we've got to let Him tear those things down. And when we begin to understand this, we can then embrace the seasons of tearing down. Because there are seasons that we go through a time of being torn. Being pruned. Jesus put it in, that, in those terms in John 15. He prunes us. And sometimes the pruning process isn't very comfortable. As a matter of fact, pruning can hurt us. But listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 3. Where Solomon talks about a time for, there's, there's, a, there's a time for every season under heaven. He goes, you know, early on it says a time to be born, a time to die, so on and so forth. But notice, verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. Those are the seasons that we oftentimes have to go through. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that, that aspect of, of a time to kill and a time to heal, listen, that brings us back to what? Being a disciple of Jesus Christ who carries a cross every day. Why? Because the cross is the symbol of dying to self and dying to sin and dying to the things of this world so that we might live for Christ. We tear down so that He might build us up. There are things in our lives that we're not very happy about or very you know, proud of. Well, you know what? There's nothing to be proud of when we, when we sin. But you know what? God is also a God 
that heals. God is also a God that forgives. God is also a God that restores and he builds up and, 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 and restores even sometimes things multiply to us. And we wonder why God, we don't deserve it. But it's his character to be gracious and merciful. Why would God send His only begotten Son to die on a cross where Paul calls it at that, that uh, moment in time that, that uh, you, I, I lose uh, thought of the, of, of the phrase but I'm going to look it up because I don't want to miss it because it's, it's actually Galatians 4.4 4 where, where it says here uh, at the, uh, uh, when the fullness of time had come. Hey, that was a senior moment there, okay? I'll, just, I'll give that one to you free. That was a senior moment. When the fullness of time comes, that fullness of time was when Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins. Why would God send His only begotten Son, who was holy, without sin, without blemish, come to die for us? We don't understand it. But we don't have to understand it if we can understand one thing. Our need is great. God's grace is greater. Amen? I just want to make sure you, you, you agree with that. That's why you say amen, you know, because the word amen or amen means that's true. Our sin is great. God's grace is greater. Ah, all right, good. All right, let's get back to our study. And then uh, <clears throat> there's this deserted city that would one day be filled with people praising the Lord and, and expressing their joy to one another, as, as we see in the next two verses of our text, verses 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place, of which you say, it is desolate without man and without beast, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. I mean, it's like a ghost town is what it's being described as. But then, in that city, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, that's a tremendous statement. Because it can be taken, certainly literally, that one, one day again, there will be the celebrations that should take place within families of a bridegroom and a bride, by the way. <laughs> bridegroom and bride. And, and the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return, as at the first, says the Lord. Why is it important about the bridegroom and the bride? Because that is a picture of Jesus and the church. God and Israel. Jesus and the church. What has God always wanted to be for His people? He wanted to be king certainly to his to his subjects master to his servants husband to his bride and Jesus with the church book of revelation talks about the bridegroom and the bride Jesus in Matthew's uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 talks about the bridegroom and the bride why because of his love for the church 
So it's very significant then that this is mentioned here. But there's a need to look at the distant fulfillment of this prophecy rather than just look at the near fulfillment in Judah's return from Babylon. Because while I'm sure that there was a a great rejoicing in returning to the land after 70 years of captivity, this wasn't the end all. It wasn't just for that time. It wasn't just to say, once you guys get back from... from, uh, from uh, Babylon, you know, everything's going to be, you know, okay, everybody's cool and we're all going to be rejoicing and everything. Well, Jerusalem has undergone a lot of struggles, has, haven't they? I mean, eventually there would be subjection to whom? Subjection to Gentile powers such as the Medes, then the Persians, Greeks uh, to a certain extent, and of course the Romans. Which, you know, the obviously goes to follow is, is this diaspora, of, uh, which is this, uh, this, the, you know, the scattering of the people out of Jerusalem and out of Israel in 70 AD, when the Roman armies led by Titus came in and destroyed the city and killed about a million to, to two million Jews. Well, there's another enemy that Israel today will have to face. And I would have to say very soon, that Israel will face another enemy. We oftentimes call him the Antichrist or the beast, the dragon of the book of Revelation. One of the sad things about the study of Bible prophecy, and this is something that kind of weighs heavy on me when I think about it, because we always talk about God restoring the, you know, Israel and, and, and how precious Israel to us is uh, as the church and, and so on and so forth, but... But one of the sad things about studying the, uh, the Bible and studying prophecy is that we have to prepare uh, w- uh, the reality. We have to prepare for the reality that the Scriptures reveal uh, about the times of the end, or what Scripture reveals about the time of the end, especially as it relates to Israel. Because we have to deal with the prophecy of Zechariah that predicts the future death of millions of Jews. That hasn't happened yet. This is not, by the way, when I read this, this is not the, the Holocaust. Listen to Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9. And I really want you to mark this passage because it becomes very significant in Bible prophecy and our study of what's happening today. But in Zechariah 13, verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the, shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Stop there and think. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. Who was stricken? Jesus. Who was put on the cross? Jesus. And it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What happened in 70 AD? Israel was scattered. And then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in the, all the land, says the Lord. Now remember, there's still seven years of tribulation that Israel has to endure. It hasn't happened yet, but it's very close to happening. And it says, And it shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds. That leaves one-third of the Jews. This is going to be worse than the Holocaust in numbers and in devastation. That burdens my heart. But one third shall be left in it. I will bring the one third through the fire. You see, He has not destroyed them all. He brings them through the fire. 
will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. Where does that, what does that bring to your remembrance? Verse 3. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. And so at the end of that period known as the Great Tribulation, the Lord will gather His people into the land and He will set up His kingdom on earth. Now, of this time we read in Isaiah 51 verse 11. Now, look at what it says here. It says, So the ransom of the Lord shall return. That's not talking about just their return from, from captivity in Babylon. It's looking further into the future. So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There are a couple of reasons why. First of all, because they will see the Lord. And because the Lord comes back, then they know they will never have to go through this again. And Jesus will be reigning on the throne. Because it's Jesus who comes at His second coming and His feet will land on the Mount of Olives facing the gate, the east gate of the city. Those of you who have been to Israel, you've seen it. And you've stood on the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to be. And he's going to go through that gate that right now is, is, is blocked up. But there's nothing too hard for him. You can't break up an entrance that God says, I'm going to go through. And Jesus is going to lead us. Come back with him. Right through that gate. Exciting times coming. But also burdensome times. Well, getting back to our text. We see an interesting illustration that the Lord is giving us here in verses 12 and 13. So Jeremiah 33, 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts... In this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and all, in all its cities there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. That's an interesting thing because in the counting there was also that checking. They were checking for any imperfections and, and, and all. So throughout the nation, people would once again enjoy the, the privilege and the joy of work. Shepherds and their flocks would have plenty of pasture. The flocks would prosper throughout the promised land. Someday in the future, shepherds would count their sheep in peace and security rather than in times of war and chaos. The businesses and the workforce of the nation would build a strong, bustling economy. All of this would happen because the Lord Himself would restore and rebuild the nation. And while all of that is great, the best was yet to come. 
I've already kind of referred to the best that was yet to come, but in fact the Lord puts it in, it puts it in this way in verses 14 through 16. And this is where we're going to end here tonight. But notice verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing. Now underline that phrase, that good thing in your Bibles. I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So here God says, this is a promise I've given to them. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. I want you to notice that the word branch is, is, is capitalized. Of course, that's only in the English. But that's to remind us of something. That that branch that it's talking about is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Remember that Jesus Christ came to this earth the first time, not to judge, but to what? To save. But when He comes again, He comes with justice. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called. In other words, Jerusalem will also be called this. Yahweh which is the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. A person, you know, a person doesn't have to be very perceptive or judicious, uh, a, a judicious observer to see that the world today lacks the equality and justice that it wants. Lacks it everywhere, in every country, in every planet, I, I should say, in every uh, 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 hemisphere. We certainly live in the days and the times that uh, were described by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20. Listen to this, because this is where we live right now. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We live in those times right now. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in those times right now. It's significant that the prophet Jeremiah used the phrase, Behold, the days are coming. He used it 16 times. Seven times were used in negative connotation, dealing with judgment. But the remaining nine occurrences of that phrase, Behold, the days are coming, point to a future period of blessing for the nation of Israel. When it is restored from captivity, when the righteous branch of David will be ruling over a united monarchy, and when the nation will experience peace and prosperity in the land. And once again, let me bring out this truth. God's blessings will always outweigh His judgments. God's blessings will always outweigh His judgments. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. I say that's outweighing judgment. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And the greatest blessing of all will be their promised King reigning in glory and righteousness. That's Jesus going through those gates that I talked about and right into the very throne in the temple that will be there, by the way, when He comes. The blessing here is the coming of Messiah from the seed of David, just as God had promised would happen. And of course, this is ultimately looking ahead toward the kingdom age when Israel as a nation will know Jesus 
Yeshua as their Messiah and as the, as the Lord of righteousness. Or the Lord our righteousness. Again, Yahweh Tzitkenu. Uh, we'll see that in just a moment as I read Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6. But he will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem as righteousness fills the land. And Jerusalem will take care, or will itself take on, I should say, the characteristics of righteousness. Why? Because when we put on Jesus Christ, what are we putting on? We're putting on the righteousness of Christ. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, very similar to what we just read. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. I, I believe here again, it's, it's God reminding Jeremiah that this is the message. This is the message of restoration. It's the message of hope for Israel and for God's people. And even Jerusalem will be called the Lord our righteousness. That's going to be the name of Jerusalem. That is, the people who dwell around the Lord will also bear his name. Isn't that what we have today as Christians? Do, not, do we not bear the name of Christ as Christians? We're bearing the name of Christ today. Just as God's people will bear the name of God when Jesus rules on this earth. Now, would all of this apply to believers in Jesus today? Well, I want to close with 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Because it does apply to us. And it does concern us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, when Israel finally sees their Messiah, when they see him coming in the clouds, when they see him with his scars, they will weep. The old will be passed away for them. All things will become new to them. Well, it's already done that. It's already become that for us as Christians. Verse uh, 18 says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Lord our righteousness, does it apply to us? It certainly does. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Who's that? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are putting on his righteousness. And by the way, when we put on his righteousness, we don't take it off. So let's remember that as we're living in the moment, because that's where each and every one of us are, as we're living in the moment, the Lord is going to be with us through it all. If indeed we have put on the righteousness of Christ. Shall we pray?